Welcome to Shoot First, Talk Later, the photo shoot podcast with me, Robert Gershenson. My guest is Andrew Pollock, who is currently starring as Strat in Jim Steinman's Bat Out of Hell, the musical at the Dominion Theatre in London's West End. If you want to see the photos I've just shot of Andrew, head to sftl.photos. We've done the shooting, now let's do the talking. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on Shoot First, Talk Later. (laughs) (laughs) The show is... It's getting amazing, amazing reviews. Yeah, you know, I think it is due to amazing, amazing audience members who come every night to see the show. I, everyone relates to this music in so many varied, powerful ways. Uh, you, you have people who come up to you after the show and say, oh my gosh, uh, my father used to play me Bad Out of Hell when I was a three-year-old and he pushed me on the swings and uh, the swing set would be right next to the church and uh, my mother never never forgave my father because I would sing uh, Bat Out of Hell on the swing set in its entirety right next to the church saying like hell and everything. So uh, you, you have so many people who um, have so many clear memories of these songs and uh, they really connect them to their family and their life. Is that why you think, because when I think of Meatloaf and Bat Out of Hell, I think it's so quintessentially American. So I've always wondered why there's such connection to that kind of music over here in the UK. You know, I have that same fascination. I know that the first Bat Out of Hell album, some of the musicians who played were part of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band. And I think when they played the music and did the recording, they thought possibly that it was a parody album of... uh, Bruce Springsteen's uh, Born to Run, because when you think about it, Thunder Road does sound a little bit like Bat Out of Hell, but, you know, Bat Out of Hell kind of goes crazy and goes into a whole other dimension of uh, rock and roll and awesome. And I don't know whether Jim, when writing these songs, was doing almost an homage to 1950s rock and roll and then putting a spin on it and saying, yeah, but this is what it's changed into because now we're in like the 70s where everything is crazy and it's sex, drugs and love and rock and roll. And it's all about change and expression and valuing everything that's special about an individual. I'm wondering possibly if that's what uh, people connect to. That's possibly what the UK connected to. It was the idyllic Uh, symbols of America kind of turned on their head and turned into something almost completely different and beautiful. It is definitely that that 1950s kind of, you know, varsity jackets and baseball and, you know, necking out with girls on Lover's Lane in in like Cadillacs. It's definitely that thing that, you know, I always think of the happy days when, when people think of that, but we love it over here. We love that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, the pinnacle of that, uh, what leather jacket uh, varsity jacket or going to a car and necking is in paradise by the dashboard light yeah so and you can even hear it in the baseline where it's like do 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 so i you know you've got like Bill Haley in the comments yeah yeah absolutely it's awesome so let's go back let's go way 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 back sure were you one of those glee kids at school you know i was not I, I I would have loved to have been I mean geez that would have been so cool um I was a sports kid I did lacrosse I really really liked lacrosse That's um I not thought a, a usual American pastime lacrosse um, I think it's more usual in America than probably the UK okay uh and were you on the school team for that I I, I was on the school team and uh I thought I would probably just pursue What's seen as possibly a normal path in America where you uh, play a sport, if you're good at it, you hope to get a scholarship from a college or university. Based on that sport. Based on that sport. And you play it at the college university and you study to possibly become pre-med and then become a doctor or something. And that's basically the path that I thought I was going on. And uh, that all suddenly changed uh one summer when i was going down a hill really really fast almost like a bat out of hell on a bicycle and there was a blind turn at the end of this hill and i was going so fast that i wasn't paying attention to the blind turn and all of a sudden a car came from the blind turn and i panicked and i hit my brakes on my bicycle i was going really really fast and only the front brake worked so i blacked out 
and my dad was riding behind me and he said he saw me basically do a Superman on my handlebars oh. as the front wheel refused to move and I just flew over the handlebars and uh, landed very, very hard on oh, what I believe you guys call is the pavement. Yes. Right? Okay. <laughs> the sidewalk. Oh, no, not the no. sidewalk. Oh. Sorry. What, what, the road. On oh, the road. It's just yeah. called the road We here? call it the road oh, as well. <laughs> okay. Forgive my ignorance. <laughs> So what you were you were you were passed out you were knocked out I, I was knocked out I woke up in a pool of blood uh, they rushed me to the emergency room uh, I dealt with a concussion and head trauma and uh, they had to put me in a stretcher because they thought possibly I wouldn't be able to walk and I was in um, basically the head trauma unit for about five days Jesus yeah so it, it was really really serious and. Uh, you know, if I wasn't wearing a helmet, I probably would not be here right now. So wear a helmet, I guess, is the main moral. <laughs> uh, secondly, though, uh, at the end of the five days when they thought I was well enough to possibly get up and walk around, I hadn't walked for five days. They put me in a wheelchair. And when I met the doctor, the doctor said, hey, can you walk in a straight line? And I got out of the wheelchair and I stumbled and I couldn't walk in a straight line. And the doctor said, uh, no, no sports for a year. No contact sports, no sports where you like are physically bumping into people. But was there, what, you had broken legs, arms, what? No, just my head was still so scrambled up that they didn't oh, want I it see. to get um, hit or shaken again. Is that hard to deal with? Especially at such, well, you're 14, you said. Yeah, yeah. At such a young age, that's, that's quite a big, you know, if you've got your, if you think you've got a particular path and suddenly, boom, that's taken away from you. How do you deal with that at age 14? I... You don't know what to do. You, at that age, I had not been uh, exposed to really anything besides, I don't know, sports or like watching TV, yeah. you know? Like, that's kind of the, or at least my opinion of the American upbringing. You're just like, oh, well, you either do this or you do this. And I, I don't know, I had been into drawing, but I had never um, really given any thought to music or uh, rock and roll or theater. So uh, my dad, knowing me when I was down, uh, he was really, really into music and he wanted to share his love of that with me. And he played me Paradise by the Dashboard Light. He played me Meatloaf. And hearing that kind of energy in Meatloaf, hearing that kind of energy in Jim Steinman's music, uh, it really, really inspired me to go, oh my gosh, there's a whole other avenue where you can expend all of your limitless amounts of energy and really really sink your teeth into something and almost treat it like a sport so from that point on that's that's what your life became music what you you suddenly went into what singing lessons or the choir or yeah i um i went into the choir i uh i eventually moved into like musicals and i eventually did become that kind of uh i guess glee kid like jazz hands and all that well, I, I guess, though I didn't really feel like I was totally, totally part of that group because I didn't like start out like that at a yeah. very, very young age. Uh, so, and I, I, I still didn't like take singing lessons until much later. And I still, um, I, I still kind of thought, well, I'm still going to go to a school and do like pre-med and yeah. still try to pursue that. So... I don't know, but I, I really, really did like being in rock and roll bands and like starting bands and playing at talent shows. And um, I, I really like playing at the drum set as well. So when did you discover that you could sing? You know, it's the weirdest thing. It was um, it was two years after my accident. I was in my school choir and the choir teacher said, yeah, Andrew, you're going to do the solo on this song. And I I didn't really register. I went, oh, wow, that's really kind of weird. I don't know if I'm really prepared for a solo. But I, I, I worked at it. And, um, you know, the strangest thing is I would, like, re-listen to this CD over and over again that had the song that we were singing. What was and I would, song? like, sing along to it. Oh, geez. It must have been some kind of gospel... Um, Funky song. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Funky like, gospel. Okay, all right. You win. I'm in love with you. All right. I, I don't know. So okay. something along I that. I think I know the, the kind of you yeah. know, you the gowns on. And, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know if we use the hands, though. I know you keep... <laughs> I keep doing really, that. You're hoping for those hands. <laughs> I'm hoping I know for that. jazz hands. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So he said, you're going to do the solo, and you went, excuse me? Yeah, I, I didn't really know what to expect, so I was like, okay, well, I'll just um, try the best that I can. And I went, and uh, we did the concert, and my parents came to see it, and I, I sang it, and I, I don't know, the, the concert finished, I go up to my parents, and my mom's looking at me with a face of kind of shock, and she goes, oh my gosh, you can sing. <laughs> wow. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, I, I think everyone can sing. So no, they can't. Yeah, <laughs> because I I can't sing. Really? <laughs> yeah, God no, God no. I had I had um I had Cindy Wilson on from the B fifty twos a couple of episodes ago, and she was like, "Well, I didn't know I could sing." She's from the south, obviously. That's an amazing impersonation of her. That was a good impersonation. Um, yeah. And um. And she was like, what, similar, she says similar to you. And I was like, no, I cannot sing. Like, if I was to sing, it would, it would hurt me and you. I always thought people could sing just like how everyone can think, you know? So I, I always thought it was just uh, like, so, oh, everyone's has it, but some people choose to do it. Some people choose not to. But, so you, so even when you were like into sports, you were just sort of like, you, you, at that time you thought you could sing or it was only the case of, once once you had your accidents and you kind of had to find your new path you thought well i'd better put that singing to good use or it it's was funny case of you, you know, discovered you could I, I i guess i knew i could sing i just didn't know it would be anything special i don't know i guess you just don't register it like i i can't think of another example to tell you the truth so from that that concert right you then what you set up sort of garage bands or open mic spots yeah yeah i did um i I really, what, I, at the time, I really liked the band, oh, Jet? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are You Gonna Be My Girl? So I I put together a band to, like, play that song at a talent show and then tried to keep that band together. And then, of course, that band always falls apart. And then, you know, I wanted to do another one where we, like, covered Fall Out Boy songs. And then I really liked, um, uh, what, Cartel. And I put together a band to, like, cover, like, Cartel songs. And then, um... I don't know. It, 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 these people, they come and go. They like to play guitar and then they're like, okay, I don't really want to do this anymore. Or Where were so. you finding these people? Uh, you, were, what, you were 16, 17 at the yeah, time. Yeah, this was mostly in uh, high school. Yeah. Just like friends and everybody. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of did that. And then I just, uh, I, I went to college and I basically decided that I wanted to, um, and this is such a sad thing. I didn't feel that people who were part of the arts were actually uh, well-respected as thinkers. And um, I wanted to prove that I was a smart kid and not just like a goof that did uh, like crazy rock and roll stuff in musical theater. Huh. So I went to the University of Rochester thinking I'm going to go be a, a pre-med and uh, just become a doctor. And, you know, I, I guess prove all these people wrong and so you went you went to university i did i went to university and i did all the pre-med classes in my first year and i did fine in the classes but holy cow i was so incredibly bored it just <laughs> it, i i don't know if the stuff speaks to you that's great yeah. I, I would be still fascinated in it uh possibly had i had like the right mindset but it just was like wow where's the color in my life? Where's the like vibrancy of like reaching out to someone and uh, having a human relationship and telling a story. So uh, I I guess I I took one class that was um, a whole bunch of uh, classical and scriptural backgrounds. And we read like the Iliad and we read the Odyssey and we read like Dante's Inferno. And uh, it was just to complete a requirement. And I kind of just went, wow, this professor really, really knows like the heart of storytelling and the heart of like humanity's need for storytelling. And uh, I, I discovered that University of Rochester had this almost secret but brilliant little theater program. And they would do these weird, weird, far out plays that um, uh, Susan Laurie Parks, who's uh, a great play- playwright from, oh geez, I, I think she's... From America, maybe she lived in Germany, but she did a play for every single day of the year, and she called it 365 Days, 365 Plays. And I guess a whole bunch of different theater programs took like a certain week of plays, and they would perform them. And they'd just be like these wild, weird things where like 12 people would enact being like a honeybee and something (laughs) along that line. So 
I kind of found this little secret niche of uh, cultural exploration in my university. And I went, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I want to do. And I guess further, uh, my school was associated with the Eastman School of Music. And uh, it's like one of the three top schools for music in the U.S. And so I took voice lessons there. And then I met a lot of kids who seemed to walk the line between uh, doing like really, really hardcore academics at University of Rochester and then being musicians as well. And a bunch of these kids kind of came together and they said, hey, we really, really want to start a band and we want you to be the singer. And I was like, yes, let's do it. Let's do it. And you know what? Let's like start a record label and let's like go all the way Just and be proper do indie. it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And uh, the school, there was like a scholarship to like, pay for that and pay for like a free year where I could just explore being an entrepreneur in music. And we started a band that was called uh, Cat House, though I think we went through like a few names. There was like Fear of Escalators and um, yeah, Metapop. And um, but we decided on Cat House and we had like a bunch of cat themes and we gave it like, uh, I guess, a heck of a run for about two years trying to see what it would be like to be like, I don't know, we call ourselves like a sex rock act. Okay. And uh, what, what does that entail? I I guess we like to sound like the darkness. You know, I believe in a thing called love yeah. and like other stuff like that. But we also really loved uh, Block Party and we loved the Arctic Monkeys. So I don't know. Maybe there were influences that were already drawing me to the UK. Because hmm. what at that time, I guess Two Door Cinema Club had just like come about. And they, I don't know, they were... I, I don't know why, but they seemed like they were doing something that was like no one else had done before and everyone was going crazy for it. But I don't know, maybe here everyone was like, yeah, been there, done that, seen that. <laughs> but when they yeah. hit, when they came to America, it was like, oh, wow, this is like wild. It's when you guys, you, you sort of, over there, you really embrace our acts. Yeah, we do. You really do take our acts on and, and sort of run with them. So Arctic Monkeys, massive over there. The darkness. Yeah. I've just wrapped up a, a US tour. And you love Queen and the Beatles and We do. Duran Duran. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I also love the even more like I don't know, obscure stuff. Like I really, really got into your like math rock era. Math rock? What's that? Uh, I it As was, in mathematics. I guess so, yeah. They would do like weird time signatures. It was like bands like Color who turned into Tangled Hair. They just released an album. Uh there's like Delta Sleep. There was a band called Tube Lord, which... Um, I have I, no idea about these. Ones. But then again, I'm not that well-versed in all the new bands. Oh, okay. <laughs> I haven't a clue. My, my, my musical taste, really rooted in the 70s. I'm wearing the Kiss shirt. Oh, yeah, but I'm I talking mean, to a guy in the, in the Meatloaf musical. <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, 70s rock, what was so cool about that was that was like also a time when like everything was just like changing so mm. wildly. So, yeah, I mean, I, what was so cool is that my school also had a course that was called 1970s rock. And we would look at like... A album a week so I think it was 12 weeks and it was like a different album each week so it would be like The Wall it would be like Yes is Fragile it would be um jeez I can't remember the Alice Cooper album but it uh School's Out yes that was it yeah Yeah. so these are real cultural linchpins oh yeah absolutely and then uh Jethro Tull's uh Aqualung and um so a lot of Bob Ezrin in there Produced, I don't know he about produced. Is he, he produced, the guy who produced most? Of he these? produced the wall. He produced um, all of Alice's early stuff. Like oh, the that's, first ten years. That's wild. Yeah, I'll have to look up this guy. He's I really just don't produced. Know him. He's just produced Alice's new album, and there's a there's a track on there that sounds like it could have come off the wall. So you you check that out because you'll probably really like that one. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So you were you were rocking and rolling, and you were learning about rock and roll at school. But then how do you then turn that into a theatre career? From, from, after, from school, what did you graduate with? Oh, I graduated in uh, English and I graduated in music. And um, I did that DIY uh, project with the band Cat House. And we all kind of realized, holy cow, um, this is challenging. Like, if you really, really want to go for it, it's probably going to take us uh, I don't know, probably like three more years mm. if we're really, really going through the DIY approach because we were getting traction and we were doing like tours in the area. But, um, 
you know, you're in like one city, you have to like reach out to a whole, whole huge place or just move to New York City. Oh, so you moved from Philly to New York? Uh, sorry, this is all in Rochester, New York. In Rochester. Um, okay. Oh, it's in New York, is it? Okay. Yeah. So, but you had to move to like, you know, New York City. And um, I don't know that everyone kind of lost interest and everyone was like, yeah, I'm going to go get a real person job. And I thought, you know, I don't know in this super like hip hop pop driven world right now that there's really a place for rock and roll to really, really take root and um, have a sustainable career. So I started looking into grad schools for theater because that was the other thing that really, really drove me. And I looked at a bunch of the Ivy Leagues and uh, auditioned for them and got into Brown and Columbia. And I decided that I would go to Brown. So I went to like the tiniest, tiniest uh, United State and um, went to Providence, Rhode Island. And Is that near New York? I know it, nothing it, about um, the, lo- the geography. Yeah, that's fine. It's, it's like above New York and to the right of Connecticut. Okay. So, so it's, I mean, it's not too, it's still like East three Coast. hours. Yeah, it's, okay. it's East Coast, Northeast. And um, I, I was there for three years and uh, basically was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to give it a, a try as um, like a theater person. But yeah. I, I did straight theater. I didn't even do musical theater. So, so just acting. Yeah. Okay. And like, I would try to like uh, form a group up there, but um, mostly it was just focusing on acting and uh you know, after the three years, you do a showcase in New York City and you do it in L.A. and you see uh, who's interested in you and who wants to, like, take you up uh, because agents come to these showcases. And I, I got um, a, a fine response and I, I had a nice agency. And then you kind of just move to New York City and you just give you it just, a go. You just start. You, you start, just start auditioning like, on auditioning. and Grassrooting it. Yeah. And it... It's tough. It's a challenge for anyone who's done it or is doing it or is about to do it. You get there, you audition, and you feel like you're not seen. You're not... Um, you feel invisible. You're not heard. You're yeah. just... Um, you're judged as, oh, you're an actor. Like, okay, but what are you going to do to actually make money? What are you going to do to make a living? And I basically... I had enough funds saved up that I said, no, I'm not going to get a day job. I'm just going to keep auditioning every day and keep going to open calls. And... Ah, boy, you just, you fail a lot, you succeed, but you hear nothing, or I wouldn't really say succeed. You just, you just kind of like bash your head against a wall and uh, see where it gets you. Part of that is succeeding. If you're not, if you're not putting yourself in a situation where you go, hey, I'm going to quit. Oh yeah. That is a success. Yeah. It might not feel like it, but that is a success. Uh, Yeah. I mean, when you look back on it, you go, oh my gosh, yes, this is all what it was leading up to Mm. because- I was looking online one night and I saw that <laughs> I seem to plug the SpongeBob musical a lot uh, in my interviews, but uh, there was an audition for it. There was an audition for the SpongeBob musical, and I knew that SpongeBob had already been cast, but I loved SpongeBob as a kid. And I was like, oh my gosh, this would be so, so cool. And they're saying like all the people who have written music for it. And I was like, wow, this sounds like, like a rock and roll kind of raucous, like funny show. I've got to audition for it. So I went to the open call for the chorus and I walked into a room that was maybe a little larger than this and it was packed full of about 150 guys. And these are 150 like dancing guys. And they did what I thought was urban legend. They led us all into the room by like groups of 20 and basically said, uh, yes, no, 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 yes, no, yes, no. They're just going by looks, Based not on going look, by talent or anything. No, talent. Well, I don't know. They might've been looking for like, can you juggle or something? Yeah. But, uh, I got a no. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, there goes my whole day. <laughs> I waited and I didn't even get seen. So the week after, there was a principal audition for it. And oh, I went... For the, the main cast, not yeah, the Yeah, for the okay. main cast. And I went, ah, oh, geez. If the chorus cast was, or casting was so full, I'm sure this principal one is just going to be like packed to the brim. And I walked in there and it wasn't. There were only about 10 people. So I went in in the first like 15 minutes. I honestly, I can't understand it. I sang in front of the guy that I was supposed to sing in front of for the chorus call. And what did you sing? I sang uh, living on a prayer wow. and I got to like That's the high song. bit. Yeah. yeah I was going to say, did bit. you get that, that high note? Yeah. You go to that high bit and they all kind of looked up and went, <laughs> where did this kid come from? And they said, okay, uh, we'll let you know. 
And I get a call from my agent uh, the next day, and they say, hey, did you try out for the SpongeBob musical? And I went, yeah, I did. And they said, well, they want to see you again, bring an instrument, and play a rock song. So I was like, wow, awesome. And I got like super prepared with all the sides and everything, and I was like, I'm going to wear a SpongeBob belt and like, a SpongeBob shirt. <laughs> oh, I brought in like a... You're going to cosplay. Yeah. I brought in like a SpongeBob <laughs> backpack. Yeah. I don't know if cosplay was the, the smartest idea, because of course, when I set that backpack down, when I was in the audition room, I was like... Who's the adult with the kids back? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And, uh, you know, everyone seemed to bring in guitars. So I wanted to be different. And I said, you know, I'm going to bring in like a giant like floor tom drum. That's like bright red. And I'm going to bang away on that. And I'm going to sing like 16 bars of Jet, Are You Going to Be My Girl? Because that was another like rocking one that I really, you know, of course, I'm referencing that like way from the past. But um, But that's your rock education. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm sitting about to go in for that audition and a guy next to me kind of leans over and goes, hey, you auditioning for that uh, Bat Out of Hell open call just down the street? And I said, do you mean Meatloaf Bat Out of Hell? And he went, no, no, I think it's a misnomer. I I think it's written by like some guy named Jim. Oh my God. (laughs) So, you know, for someone who... I guess is not educated in like the meatloaf Jim Steinman lore. Yeah. Uh, you just don't know. Yeah. However, I put two and two together and my love for like meatloaf when I was a teenager, uh, that my dad inspired in me, I kind of just went, I-, I have to go for this. So I hustled down to, uh, that open call, uh, like two blocks down, bumping into people on the way with the big drum, because of course, uh, even though it's like a carrier, it's still like another person that you're yeah. carrying with you. Not taking the job on the tube. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I make it to this audition, and of course, everyone who's waiting in line is wearing like leather jackets, like spiked belts and everything, and chains, like just like I was wearing. SpongeBob. And here I am in the SpongeBob <laughs> outfit with the big bright red drum, and I felt thoroughly. Uh, I don't know, embarrassed, but there was also a piece of me that just said, "I don't care." For some reason, I feel like I'm supposed to be here. And I read uh, the lead character's description, and it was the first time I went, oh, yeah, I could do this. What did it say? Oh, jeez. Leader of the Lost, permanently 18, uh, wild and rebellious. I'm really just kind of pulling this out of thin air right now. And I I think has to have a vocal range a la Freddie Mercury. Oh, wow. um, But they're not asking for much. That's a, that's yeah, a big yeah. range. No, they were asking for, I guess, a lot. Yeah. But uh, what did they... You know, they definitely said blonde hair, blue-eyed boy. And I went, I, I think I have that at yeah. least. <laughs> was your hair... Your hair wasn't looking like this. Because you, no. you got your hair now as you have it in the show. Yeah, no, what my hair was... your hair, hair was, like at the time? My hair was fairly short back then. I, I don't know. I was doing that like hipster look where you like shave the sides and like keep the top long. Yep. I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I've got. Yeah. So I walked into that room barely able to, barely being able to get the drum to fit through the door. And the casting director, who must have just been having the most boring day because she was like this with like her hand in her face and her elbow on the table, all of a sudden perks up. And wonders why a Spongebob kid has just walked into her audition room. And she goes, uh, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I thought I'd do 16 bars of uh, a rock and roll song. And she said, okay, take it away. And I did it. And uh, she seemed pleased. And I walked out of the room. And I honestly didn't think twice about it, given that I had auditioned for so many things. And you just don't hear anything. Yeah. Was it just her in the room? It was just her in the just pianist. Just yeah. Okay. Um, so about a week later, my agency calls me up and goes, hey, did you audition for uh, the Bat Out of Hell musical? <laughs> it's I funny that your agent's asking you this. Yeah, I know. I, maybe, maybe my communication skills, because I had auditioned for so much. Yeah. I'd just been like, you know what? I, why bother telling them if I just auditioned for all these things and yeah. I never hear anything? So they say, hey, they want to see you again, and they want you to bring the drum back. Oh, wow. Uh, I was kind of in shock and I went, okay, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And they're like, oh yeah, and choose a different song. So I went back to Living on a Prayer and I did it with the drum and I went in there and I, uh, I was for, I was going up for Jaguar because obviously I was a nobody. Mm. I had had no real, um, 
I guess credits to my name besides ones that I've done in like regional theaters and at school. So I, I guess they were essentially taking a risk. So they brought me in for Jaguar and I played the whole entirety of Living on a Prayer. And then uh, I, when I finished it, they all kind of looked at me like, where did you come from? And the director was there, Jay Scheib, the musical director, Mike Reed was there. There were a whole bunch of casting directors in the back. Uh, like it was a, probably the biggest room that I had been in with with a bunch of people. Yeah, and uh, Jay was like, "Wow, we're, are are you in like a rock band?" And I said, "Ah, you know, I was, but you know, it didn't really uh, turn out so well." And he's like, "Oh, okay, thanks." <laughs> and I I kind of just left that room again and didn't think too much of it until I get a call the next day where they say, "Hey, they really want to see you again, but they want to see you for the lead." Uh, this kind of floored me and I went, oh, okay, sure. And they said, go in there, don't bring the drum and just like do your thing. What did you sing? Uh, I actually had to sing uh, Bad Out of Hell and I had to do the opening speech. To be able to recreate that speech was wild. And I don't know, I guess I, I just must have been an ignorant new person because I didn't realize that I was going up against people who had been like in Glee, like actually the show, oh, wow. like the sixth <laughs> season. Uh, someone who was in like Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark and someone who like sings Jim's Diamond songs for a living. Uh, so I was going up against those people. I walked into the room the first time. There was just, it was littered with people. It was littered with like Jim Steinman right in the middle. Uh, all the producers potential producers for the show so far, uh, all the casting people, and, uh, of course, the director. And I kind of walked in there, and maybe because I was ignorant and didn't fully realize everyone who was in the room, I just kind of went, okay, I'm going to go and do this. But you knew it was Jim in there. Because it's one thing to go, oh, the director's here, but that's quite an anonymous person. There's a casting director. But Jim Steinman, the guy who wrote the song that I'm about to sing, did you know it? Did you look at him and go, oh, that's Jim? I honestly was so uh, in like a, oh, geez, what is this? What is this? That I didn't fully realize that the man who was wearing sunglasses indoors with the spikes was Jim Steinman. Sitting on a motorbike. Yeah, sitting on a motorbike. <laughs> and I, 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 I didn't fully register it until I walked out of the room and then I went, holy cow, was that Jim Steinman sitting in the middle? Yeah. So uh, I don't know. The audition process lasted a long time. We were there for like three hours. And of course, I'd brought my car in from Brooklyn that day. And uh, I was like, I'm going to get a parking ticket. I really have to move my car. But they were like, no, 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 stay, stay, stay. And uh, we finished that first full day and everyone just left and no one knew. And I didn't hear until maybe like 9 p.m. when I got another email from my agency. They said, they want to see you tomorrow. Like bring the same stuff, sing the same (laughs) stuff. And I think that was just to show, uh, can you sing this again? Yeah. Can you scream a rock opera and then can you sing it tomorrow did you I, think did you think you did i mean they obviously thought you did great but did you were you happy with your performance it was the first audition or for like a final final uh casting that i kind of went wow you know i think i could actually potentially do this so so you were growing a confidence i was getting confidence throughout the whole audition process because yeah. i'd never been called back this much <laughs> uh you were like they love me yeah absolutely <laughs> But I was also like, they love me, but uh, this could all be like, this, I, this could all be taken away just like that. So yeah, were you, were you, I mean, you can prepare for failure. Were you also preparing for success? Yeah, I, I, I think you have to prepare for both. I think, um, you know, everyone says this. Everyone says you walk into an audition room, you do your stuff there, you leave and you're just supposed to let it go. Yeah. I don't know if I've met a single person who can just walk out there and just let it go because you always get out and you're like, oh, geez, what what went right and what went wrong? And you're, you're always analyzing it. Um, I mean, I'd love to meet the person who can just be like, yeah, I walked out of there and I got a coffee and I said, whatever. Hmm. Um, so I, I don't know. I went in for the second final callback and there were a lot less people in the waiting room and I, I kind of suddenly realized that I think it was down to just me and one other person. And uh, I I kind of walked in there and everyone seemed like more hesitant and afraid of what was going to happen. The, 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 the other guy auditioning or, or the, like the I, Sorry, the whole panel, the whole okay. panel of people there. Uh, and I went through everything and I sang about it to hell and gave it my all. 
And then all of a sudden, Jim Steinman speaks up and he goes, yeah, well, that's okay. But, you know, can you do the second chorus where, um, what's the line? Of course, I sing it every night and I'm blanking on it right now. But uh, then like a singer, jeez, uh, like a singer, then like a sinner before the gates of heaven, I'll come crawling on back to you. And that second verse, yeah. uh, you know, Meatloaf takes it up the octave and goes crazy. And he's like, can you do that? Because, you know, I wrote that and you should do that. <laughs> and I was like, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I love the song. I could probably do that. So I, I sang that. And then I don't, I don't know. I think he was like, okay, cool. And I, I walked out of that but he room. Was, he was shocked or? I, I think he was just like, oh, yeah, maybe this, maybe this kid is the right choice. Yeah. And um, I kind of walked out of that audition room. And um, I remember leaving and I went, holy cow. I think I just booked that because I was running into uh, the kid who was going to audition after me. And he's like, hey, hey, what did they ask you to do in there? And I said, you know, they just asked me to do the speech and the song. And then they had me sing the song twice. And that was it. He was like, oh, cool. And he seemed really scared. But I, I kind of just walked out and went, I've never felt this way before. I feel like I did my best. And if they take me, I know why they took me. So I get a call the next morning and... Because they don't hang around, do they? Uh, they don't wait, do they? Like they email the evening and they, they call the next day. Well, that was, those were only for the final callbacks. The other ones right. were always like weeks later. So um, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm sure it's different for every process. Mm. And uh, I was about to get into the car to actually ironically go up to um, Rochester, New York to sing with a brass band ensemble that would always do uh, heavy metal songs for Halloween. Okay. They would do like Big Bottom Girls and uh, they do like a Queen medley and they do, uh, geez, what was I going to sing with them? I was going to sing uh, The Stroke by, uh, oh my gosh, why can't I remember his name? Ooh, okay. I, I can't remember. Someone. Yeah, by someone. <laughs> and then I think I was supposed to sing um, uh, I Want to Be Elected. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like all done with like a brass orchestration. It sounds cool. So, I yeah, go, I go to a concert like that. Yeah, it was it was fun, and they invited me up because I hadn't done it for about three years, and the guy was about to retire. So um, I, I'm about to go up, and I, I get a call, and they say, "Hey, I, I don't know how you did it, but you got it." So Your agent said that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got it, and you're going to uh, do the workshop for three weeks. Is that and an so unreal was, moment? It was unreal. I mean, it was all for a workshop. And I think I think the craziest thing is that me being ignorant and so new to the industry, I did not realize that a workshop basically meant you do a show for about three weeks. The show could be total junk, and producers who watch like the end performance or the reading will be like, oh, no, I don't really want to contribute money to that. And it could just disappear. Oh, so they it didn't even have the money again. in place. It was a case of... It was a case of this was the audition for the show to possibly happen. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> so I, the pressure. Yeah, did no, you feel the pressure? I didn't know the pressure. I didn't realize the pressure. I thought, I, I ignorantly thought this was a done deal. We're going to do this workshop. We're and going then we're around like, the world. Then we're going to go around the world. You're already counting the money. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, I don't know if I was counting the money, but I was like, <laughs> I'm awesome. going to buy this I can't house. Wait to sing. I can't wait to sing for everybody. Um, what we do that workshop and apparently the people who saw it all gave like a good thumbs up and there was a lot of positive reception about it. And then I didn't hear anything for about six months. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. That got be killer. Oh yeah, it was killer. I mean, I, I went out, I, I found another job and um, I was doing that. And I would say we did the workshop in whoa, 2015. Oh, a long um, time ago. So like November of 2015, I didn't hear anything until possibly June or July of 2016. And I get a call from the UK. It's a general management group here. And uh, the guy says, hi. We're going to be uh, producing Bad Out of Hell in the UK. It's going to be going to Manchester. It's going to be going to London. And then it's going to be going to Toronto. And we're hoping that you would like to play Strat. And I went, holy cow. <laughs> when can I hop on a plane and fly over there? Yes, please sign me up. I, what I would say in four months, I was hopping on a plane and, geez, meeting Meatloaf for the press launch in London. 
So you hadn't even started the rehearsals or anything. It was just no. a, a press launch to go, we're doing the musical. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're doing the musical. on whatever date. Yeah, and we're going to like close down St. Martin's Land and do like a live performance there. So we had like a week to pull that together. And then I had to uh, meet Meatloaf as we went to the Q Awards together. And I presented an award to him. And I mean, geez, that was... That was... Uh, that's got to blow your yeah, mind. Yeah, that, that blew my mind, and I was very, very nervous because I wasn't sure whether he would like me or not. And um, we're in this limo with his like bodyguard and his manager, and he's he's grilling me with questions. And I, I basically just say to him, listen, you're like a legend. You're such an inspiration in my life. It's such a thrill to meet you. You're my hero. And he's like, don't use those words. I'm just a regular guy like you or me. I'm like an everyman. He's the guy who landed on the moon first. And of course, when I said that to him, he's like, no, I landed on Pluto first. And we're just like, we follow in his footsteps. So uh, to meet the guy who made these songs uh, legendary, uh, it's just, it's surreal. It's humbling. And I'm grateful every day. Did he give you any advice? Oh, yeah. Um, He uh, talked about uh, owning the songs. He said, you know, because he, he approaches music first as an actor and uh, he said, you have to find the story behind the song. You have to see how the character relates to the song and you have to see how you relate to the song. And once you're able to make the song your own, then you can give it as a gift to the audience and they can make it their own. Uh, he talked about places to pull back and where to push and bat out of hell and how to pace yourself because, you know, Jim's songs are long. Yeah. And uh, as he said, they should probably better fit a woman's voice than uh a man's why is that but well i think i mean you know they're perfectly suited for meatloaf because he's a held in tenor um though you know you're like you're going up there to the stratosphere as a man every time when you're singing these songs so uh i think what's so great is we've got people like um christina bennington and danielle steers in the cast who uh add like whole new elements to uh Jim's Diamond Meatloaf songs that we've known for so long when they sing like Heaven Can Wait and Two Out of Three Ain't Bad. So, and I, I think it kind of just it makes the audience's eyes open and go like, holy cow, this music really touches everyone and everyone can relate to it. So let's be about your co-star, Christina Bennington. So you, you play Strat, she plays Raven. Yes. And it's almost like a Romeo and Juliet situation, but it's a very physical performance. You're very physical with each other. Was that quite awkward at the start, because I, I imagine you didn't know her before you both no, got cast. No, we didn't know each other at all. I mean, I think what's so great about the cast that Jay Chai pulled together with David Grinrod and uh, all the other uh, producers is that we were all just unknowns. Mm. Like, nobody knew who we were. And, I mean, you know, let's be honest, probably nobody still knows who we are, but um, uh, they know us as these characters. And I, I think... When we all came together, uh, we all kind of like, I don't know, lit like a communal fire of uh, love and saying like, this is our child. This is our, um, uh, I I guess, project that's going to be like shown to the world. And we really, really believe in it with every blood, sweat and tear that we shed. Uh, So uh, working with Christina has just been wonderful because we would always push each other to go further and further and uh what was funny is that that song crying out loud where we're like jumping across the stage and trying our best to sing while um you're doing lunges yeah yeah lunging and just jumping at each other yeah and jumping on a mattress um (laughs) jay initially just kind of said when you're running through the song we need like a lift we need like a jump and we need um one person on the floor and one person standing and he said, as long as those key elements are there, this will be awesome. And uh, it kind of just kept morphing through every venue. And uh, we morphed it in Manchester. We continued to morph it in London. It would morph in Toronto. And then uh, this is the kind of final result that we have where it's just, it's a very loosely improv uh, block of movement. And if we ever want to change it up, which uh, Christina loves to do, we can always... Um, uh, like I don't know, feed off of one each other. Uh, and you, you could do you, when you change it. Do you change it at, at a whim during the performance, or do you say to each other, "You know that bit"? That's just it's always on a whim. 
it's always uh, like a challenge. And I think what's great about uh, working with Christina is as soon as a challenge is presented on stage, while we're like in the heat of the moment, we'll always adjust and actually play with it and uh, possibly mold it to make it an even better situation. Do you purposely like throw a curveball to see how she reacts and vice versa? Uh, yeah, I think the curveballs probably come uh, sometimes by accident. And then uh, sometimes they're just, I, I don't know, sometimes they're just intuitive. Mm. But I, I don't know if they would like purposely be like, ha, take that, <laughs> uh, because I think that would be mean. But yeah, no, we're very much on the same page. I love that the song has become a duet. Yeah. Because when I heard that the, the music was happening and that song was included, I was like, that song is so... Uh, so central in, in my mind to Meatloaf because that ends the first album. That's almost like the parting glance saying the, the, the album that me and Jim have just done, this is what we do. That song in the show comes in about an hour and a half in, doesn't it? It's, it's in the second half, yeah, right? It does. Do you ever, cause it's, it's obviously a very physical performance. Do you ever sometimes think, Oh my God, I'm not going to be able to, I, I can't do this tonight because it's, it's just too much. Oh boy. <laughs> Crying out loud is a marker for uh i i guess my part because you once you get to crying out loud if you can get past crying out loud then you're like oh yeah i got the rest of the show stretch it really kind of is the home stretch of course you know you've got anything for love waiting for you around the corner Mm. and uh rock and roll dreams come through and uh took the words right out of my mouth however if you if you get through that crying out loud and you're still breathing and still standing then you know that uh you know, the rest is going to be carried through with uh, the adrenaline that you've already produced. You're on that downhill stretch. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think the whole musical is pretty much like uphill, <laughs> uphill throughout the constantly. entire time. But it's like, as long as I can get that... Uh, well, I mean, it's on a rake, so, you know. Um, one thing that I'm always really interested in is um, with creatives, I think no matter how, how many compliments that one can get, or how sure someone is of their talent, there's always that niggling mind, uh, voice at the back of your head that says, "Nah, you can't do this. This isn't this isn't right for you." And it's it, it's you know it's a danger that it could undermine. How do you keep that voice quiet? How do you counter it? Uh, that voice is very interesting. I think I think if you train the voice to not say so much. Oh, you can't do this. This is stupid. I I think the voice is also very curious because the voice will never say to you, um, well, you did that the best you could do it. Good job. Because I think as your voice says that to you, then it's like you should just retire and uh, maybe find something else to do. Yeah. Uh, Because the voice, I think, is there because it's saying, hey, I know you're doing it that way, but you've, you've done it that way for so long. What other meaning is behind there? I I think a prime example is uh, the opening speech. Uh, What's so beautiful about, uh, what is it? Uh, I remember everything. I remember every little thing as if it happened only yesterday. Is that it it can mean so much and it can mean so much to so many different people. And that you constantly need to explore it. You constantly need to crack it open and delve in there again and really see uh, where the root and the blood uh, lies in that speech and what actually makes its heart beat because uh, Love, Death and the American Guitar has such an intrinsic relationship with the rest of the show because it's basically defining how rock and roll was born, how uh, people stood up, uh, I-, I would say, at any time period and tried to explore uh, change and new forms of love and new forms of everyone being equal and everyone being special. So I I try to ask that voice to constantly delve into different parts of the show and say, yeah, but I know you're looking at it from this viewpoint right now, but how can you actually break that apart and possibly look at it through a new perspective? I mean, it's the same way that when you shot me, you were shooting me through a mirror. It's, um, it's trying to find a different angle. It's trying to uh, continuously delve deeper and deeper into uh, the Earth's crust where soon you get to the mantle and then hopefully you reach the core. But there's even more beyond the core. 
If you want to see the photos of Andrew, head to sftl.photos. We always end with a quiz. Oh, joy. Cool. Oh, no. So, and it's all based around you, kind of. Okay. Philadelphia is famous for its Philly cheese steak sandwiches. On average, how many calories are in each sandwich? Oh, my goodness. Uh, maybe like 1,200 calories? Oh, no, 760. Really? <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. 760? Yeah, roughly. Yeah. No, that, that can't be true. Wikipedia, got to be true. Oh, that's so wild because our basketball team, um, they're the 76ers. So. Oh, wow. Maybe numbers, that's why. Maybe thing. that's why. Yeah. Uh, meatloaf, the food, comes from which century? Oh my gosh, I, I will probably know none of these. Um, maybe the 19th century? The 5th. Seriously? Seriously, it was mentioned in a Roman cookery book called Episcus. Really? Really. Well, Wikipedia, so you never know. I was really hoping it would be like the 1800s, you know, like the the Western... uh, I don't know. Never mind. (laughs) Um, How many actors have played Batman on the big screen? Seven. Close. Nine. Ooh. Yeah. The place where we're sat right now, the Dominion Theatre, what year was it opened? It's in the program. That's where I got this information from. Son of a gun. Uh, of course, I didn't read the program. Uh, but you say there are ghosts here, so... I mean, I've never met any ghosts. I'm just oh, you trying to spook you. Can we say the 1600s? We can, but you'd be wrong. Okay. <laughs> it's 1929. Oh, jeez. This is new. Uh, and final question. On a hot summer night, would you offer your throat to the wolf with the red roses? Will he offer me his mouth? Yes. Will he offer me his teeth? Yes. Will he offer me his jaws? Yes. Will he offer me his hunger? Yes. Again, will he offer me his hunger? Yes. And will he starve without me? Yes. And does he love me? Yes. Yes. On a hot summer night, would you offer your throat to the wolf with the red roses? Yes. I bet you say that to all the boys. <laughs> <laughs> this has been brilliant. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much for having me, Robert. This is how we end the podcast. I've been Robert Gershenson. I'm Andrew Pollock. And for crying out loud, we'll shoot you later. Mm.